You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. There are many who consider The Breakfast Club the greatest high school movie of all time. John Hughes directed it as well as 16 Candles and Pretty in Pink, all of which star my guest today, Molly Ringwald. Molly strikes you as someone who had it all figured out early that she systematically set out to be a teen icon, but her idea of success was far less defined than that. I think the only thing that I I planned out was when I was seven years old, six or seven years old, I think I announced that I was going to be a famous movie star. Uh, You announced that that. to who? To Uh, the mirror or to (laughs) No, I think there were people involved. I probably announced it to the mirror as well. But uh, no, there was was a particular time when I announced it out loud to, uh, I think, relatives, cousins or something like that. And my grandmother, my mother's mother said, you can't say that. You know, that that was that was um, unseemly or immodest or right. something like that. And the reason why I remember it was because my mother became so enraged and infuriated that she grabbed me and all, and all the kids and we left my aunt's house in, in this. You and know, she was infuriated by someone that her mother bursting would say your that. bubble. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, because I think that's that's something that was told to her. And she would not— You can't do that. Don't do it to my kids. Discouragement. Don't, yeah. You can't do that. So I think that's the reason that I had this certainty that I was going to be uh, uh, an entertainer. I don't even know if I said movie star, but I think I, I definitely said I was going to be a famous entertainer. And, you know, and I, I was already sort of like a seasoned pro by then. I mean, by seven years old, I had already been on stage. I, you know, <laughs> performed with my dad's jazz band. It was, you know, it was. I had reason to believe that this was what I was going to do. Now, your dad, is he still alive? Yeah. He's a musician. He is. And was that, uh, was music and culture and the appreciation of things cultural uh, present in your household? Very, yeah. Yeah, but it was not only an appreciation in terms of art as something that is is fun or interesting. It, it was also a job. 
He made a living as a pianist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he supported a family, you know, until I started working, he supported a family on a musician's salary, which is no small feat. Now, your father's blind. That's right. Was he legally blind from birth? He was legally blind from birth huh. uh, and and then completely, entirely blind by the time I think he was about 10, between 10 and 12. Where did he grow up? He grew up in Northern California in Sacramento. And then he went away to the Berkeley School for the Blind when he was, I think, around 12 and learned how to, you know, write Braille and he had a guide dog and all of that. Um, I mean, people very often ask me, you know, what was it like having a blind father? And to me, it's like I never knew anything else. So, and, and to me, he could do anything. I mean, he, he was so, if anything, I felt like my mother was, uh, was handicapped because she's painfully shy. Uh, so my father made all the phone calls. You know, he, he was the, you know, the social calendar. He could talk to anyone. You know, he's, he was an entertainer. And so, you know, he just has always had that facility. And, of course, it wasn't easy and which is now that he gets older and you know he's more comfortable having people do things for him and I'll say you know but dad you could do anything and he's like that's ridiculous of course I didn't I couldn't do everything I just wanted you to think that I could and he did I mean he he was he was a, a I think he was an amazing father and is an amazing father when you know you're at the very least you're rehearsing in the mirror before you go up and tell <laughs> everybody in your family what your plans are um when does that change? When does that really become real for you? I think, well, and I think how? When, I was, when I was little, I really wanted to be, um, I think singing was the most important thing. I mean, that was the thing that made the most sense. And um, I wanted to be, basically, I wanted to be Bessie Smith because that's kind Why? of. Because that's who I listened to. My dad was a traditional, is a traditional jazz musician. And so that was my early introduction to jazz music was listening to Bessie Smith. And there was something about her. I mean, I was pretty shy. I still am pretty shy. Um, but when I was little, I was very, very shy. But the only time I didn't feel shy was when I was on stage in front of an audience. Right. Um, and it had to be a big audience. Like if if somebody wanted me to, you know, perform. Oh, I can't do that. I'm sorry. How many <laughs> seats is it? Three fifty? No, sorry. Yeah, but I mean, if it was like you know a couple people in the living room, that was too that was too close. Oh, I see. If if there were if there was literally, and and I'm still a little bit like that. Like for instance, I did um, a couple weeks at the Carlisle Hotel singing, singing. Yeah, um, because I've I've recently taken up singing again. And I mean, of course, you know that that room yeah. well. It's it's really hard because you're really close to the people. Yes. I mean, there's no it's way intimate. to have any kind of distance. So, you know, how'd, I, that, how'd that work for you? <laughs> I think it worked really well. I mean, I got and and they put the people right. I mean, the people were practically looking under my skirt. It was it was really kind of. I don't doubt that. <laughs> no, no, but but who produced this? Um, well, I I decided. Um, okay, we're gonna we're gonna cut ahead from you know from the time that I was little because a, a few. Things oh, we're gonna happened. go back to when you were little. A, a few things happened in between me announcing that I was going to be a, a famous uh, star and and then you know so the music kind of was the first thing that I wanted to do, and then. I think by the time I, I did my first movie when I was 13 years old, I think it was with John Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins and Susan Sarandon and Raul Julia, and it was just and well, what, Paul Mazursky. What, what movie was that? It was called The Tempest. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think it was at How that moment. How did that happen? <laughs> How did you get into the movie business? <laughs> okay, wait. Um, how did I get into the movie? Well, I, Where were you then? We had moved from Roseville, California to Los Angeles when I, I auditioned 
for my first professional job when I was 10, um, which was Annie, the first West Coast production of Annie. And I got a part in that. And at the same time, um, my father got some job or something. And so we decided as a family to move from Sacramento to Los Angeles. And then once I was in L.A., you know, I did, you know, that thing that happens where you get an agent. And then I went from the, the play and I went into a television series and then just started auditioning for stuff. And you had the stuff. bug. You were driven. You had the I bug. I was very driven. Yeah, very driven. But, I mean, I also had a stay-at-home mom who would drive me to stuff. You can't do that without having somebody that's going to, you know, do you take think you you, you, from, you have a debt to your mom? In in a certain way. It was definitely a desire that I had that I wouldn't have been able to do at that age had it not been for them being on board for that. Of course, if you talk to my mother now, she says, well, I, there's no way I would let you do that. If, if I knew everything I know about show business now, there's no way. There's no way. But you went to school while you were doing You went to Lycée Francaise? I, I went to uh, Francais, le, lycée, le Lycée Francais when I was uh, in, in 10th grade, 10th to, to 12th. Did you go to college? I did not go to college. No, when you, so, so the Tempest. Yeah. How does this estimable group of people, especially back then, mm-hmm. you know, Cassavetes and Jenna and those people, they're, they're, you know, they're still famous and making a lot of movies. Yeah. How, how do they find you? I had auditioned and, and got really close to a job in an Alan Parker movie um, with Albert Finney uh, and Diane Keaton called Shoot the Moon. Shoot the Moon. To play their daughter. And um, they had to make up their mind by, I think, you know, 12, 12 noon on a Wednesday. And they got the call. My mom got the call. I was at school, you know, at 11.45 that they had decided to go with another actress. And I was so heartbroken. I mean, I really, 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 really wanted to do it. And then it was pretty much like all the rejects from them, from that, you know, it was, it was being cast. It was Juliet Taylor and April Webster, and they they took all the kids from that. And um, and then I auditioned for The Tempest, and I just I had an immediate connection in California. In California, yeah. And what was uh, it like to be on the set of that movie with all these uh, very highly regarded actors? It was incredible. How do they treat you? Amazing. I mean, they were—John was was phenomenal. I mean, he was he was so generous and so—I um, mean, it was, it was a world that I really didn't know. I had never be, even been out of California until, you know, maybe to like Nevada or something like that. But, you know, I was playing a New York kid. I, I went to New York for the first time. I went to, to Greece. We filmed at Chinichita. You know, Fellini was on the set. I mean, it was like the entire world— Opened up. Big change for you. Yeah, and I thought this is this is what I want to do. This is this is it. And I think the singing at that time, like now, you're supposed to be able to do everything, you know. And in old Hollywood, you were supposed to be able to do everything, you know. You dance and sing. That's why I went wrong. You know, and then and then this little time when I sort of came of age, it was very specialized, and there were there were not that many people that were singing and acting and dancing. It was like you had to pick, or you weren't a serious actor. And I chose acting, and that's really where I put all my focus. And I still sang, but I just didn't think about it as a as a career. After the Tempest, what happened? After the Tempest, I I did a really fantastic movie um, called Space Hunter: Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. <laughs> in three D. I 3D. love that movie. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> it's so good. I remember showing it to my daughter, you know, when she was like five years old or something, you know, oh, I think it was maybe the first thing that I'd ever showed to her, you know, this is what mommy does. And she watched about 20 minutes and then went, the end. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Who's making the decisions for you back then? 
You know, it was a combination. It was something, you know, that I read, that I liked. I think I had pretty good taste. I mean— it, So with, Space Hunter was a good script? Um, well, maybe except for <laughs> Space Hunter. Okay. But, you know, at that point, it was either be in high school or be, at that time, it was junior high. I, I get it. You wanted to be on a set. Working. I wanted to, to work. The only <laughs> thing that I, I said I did not want to do— pretty much was I decided I no longer wanted to go out for commercials. I was, that was not my thing. I You're didn't like it. You're a movie like actress it. now. <laughs> exactly. God damn it. What happens after Space Hunter? Um, after Space Hunter, I might be forgetting a couple things. I, I did a, a movie with Richard Benjamin, I think, a television movie. I did like a couple of other little things. And then, and then I met John Hughes. Where did you meet John? I met John in Universal City. It was on the, a weekend, I remember. I did not want to take this meeting because it was the weekend and it was just like, uh, not really what I wanted to do. You want to be on a set until you want to go to the beach. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Or go to the Galleria. That's what that's what we did. <laughs> and uh, and so, but he was only there for, you know, a couple days and they said, oh, just go go and meet him. And, and, uh, and I did, I think I had read um, 16 Candles, which I thought was really funny. And then I, I think the first thing I saw were his sneakers. You know, he always had those, those, big, wild, uh, athletic sneakers. And I think that's the first thing that I saw. And then I, you know, my eyes traveled up, and he had that, like, spiky hair and those glasses. And, sure. And my then, first movie was with John. I know. I loved him. Loved him. That He was writing that or had the idea to write it during Breakfast Club. He wanted to write a series of She's Leaving Home, um, She's Getting Married, She's Having a Baby. And then I think he didn't do the other two, but just did that one. Um, yeah, so we we just kind of had an immediate uh, connection. I didn't find out until later, or he might have actually told me in that meeting, that he wrote Sixteen Candles with my picture above his desk. He had already written The Breakfast Club, which was going to be cast locally in Chicago. And it was over July 4th weekend, and he had just moved from CAA to ICM, and they gave him a stack of headshots. And he sort of flipped through the headshots, found my picture— you know, one of those really cheesy kind of headshots where you're on the like, composites. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And you're like yeah. eating pizza. And, yeah, on a like, bicycle. Playing ukulele that you can't play. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so on he, a balance beam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he put that over his computer and he wrote 16 candles, you know, like in a day and a half or something. Now, this is a guy who sees something in you and he changes your life. Mm -hmm. And people to this day just love you in these movies. I mean, they just think you represent young femininity. Mm. Was any of the conversation with John about that? Did you talk about the character in that way, or he didn't bother? It's hard to really know what we talked about. I mean— How did you do what you did? You know, I just I just trusted him. I felt like—and and I've really never felt this since— you know, it was it was you know I felt it a little bit with Paul Mazursky, but it was but it was different because because John was younger. I mean, John actually had less experience than I had at that point. I mean, Sixteen Candles was his directorial debut. He had written Vacation and he had written Mr. Mom, but he had never been in that position of actually like being on the set. Um, so it was really like we were kids in that way together, and he was really like a like a confidant. Which, I mean, to talk about it in retrospect seems, you could say it kind of seems weird, you know? Weird I'm, how? Well, I mean, I'm older than than he was when we met. But when I was 36 years old, 
Like, I didn't want to talk to people who were 15. <laughs> like, I didn't— why do, you, why do you think he did? I don't know. I, I've often asked myself this, and I don't know exactly why, except for we had this, like, sort of mind connection, that, that whole thing of, like, finishing each other's sentences. And he was very close to me, and he was also very close to Michael, Anthony Michael Hall. And we were sort of, like, I think two sides of his personality— I kind of feel like in a way that John experienced some kind of PTSD when it came to his teen years. And 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 how I mean PTSD is, you know, from what I understand, you know, the definition or one of the definitions is you experience something traumatic and your brain is not exactly able to distinguish the fact that it's not happening now in the present. And for him, he would talk about things that had happened to him years ago or a slight or something that somebody said to him. And it was, you would think, it's so present for him. He's feeling this pain and this anguish and this anger right now. And and so he completely connected with me and with, with Michael and what we were going through. You know, of course, and, and I think it enabled him to write these characters with so much honesty and, and, and it was so raw. He was a very sensitive guy. He was the most sensitive person that I've ever met. <laughs> In my life, <laughs> and I, and I and I include myself in that. Um, and there's a line in in the Breakfast Club that that I thought was really sort of interesting. When and Al, it's a line that Allison has where she says, "When you get old, your heart dies." And um, you know, and he he died of of a heart attack, too young, yeah. way too young. But I feel like he carried around so much. In, in him, so much feeling and so, like, I mean, he, this man could hold a grudge like, like no one else, you know. Um, so, I, you know, so my feelings about him are, you know, like anybody, I think, who's really incredibly important to you in your life. It's, it's complicated. And this is, is going to sound kind of glib, but it's like, cue the theme song from To Sir With Love. <laughs> now, when you... Uh, do 16 Candles refresh my memory? Does everything erupt based on that, or does it erupt somewhat and erupt even more when you do Breakfast Club? Well, when 16 Candles came out, it really was not considered a hit. I think it was sort of, um, in terms of box office, it was kind of disappointing. Uh, but we were already doing Breakfast Club when that happened, and, and then Breakfast Club came out, and that was an instantly a hit. And then I did another one, which he did not direct, Pretty in Pink, but he wrote it for me. Uh, and then that that was actually— How he directed Pretty in Pink. That's right. That's right. I worked with her. <laughs> uh, what did you work with him on? He did this movie, uh, My Best Friend's Girl, with Dane Cook. And they wanted me to play Dane Cook's father, and I was this lascivious <laughs> pig of a man— <laughs> <laughs> who was divorced from the mother, and the son had no hope of ever having any success in intimate relationships because I was such a horn dog, <laughs> slut pig. But I love Howie. He's fun to work with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he actually, uh, I, I have Howie to thank for that movie because John had written it for me. But by the time it was time to make this movie and, you know, he had moved from Universal to Paramount, John was mad at me. And didn't want me to do the movie. They were going to cast Jennifer Beals because she had just had a you know a success with Flashdance. In, in which movie? In Pretty in Pink, the movie that was written for me. They were going to cast Jennifer Beals, and Howie was actually the one that said, "But no, Molly has to be in this. This this is this." But why is for was Molly. John mad at you? 
Because that's what he did. I mean, maybe you didn't work with him enough. No, I only worked with him the one well time. Enough to, if, you, if you got close to John, then inevitably you were not close to John because he got mad at you. And I, I think when I wanted to do different stuff and— um, it's, know, almost, it's almost like don't work for anyone else. Yeah. I don't mean, work. You know, it's— Till I'm ready. If I had to do it over again, I would have worked with him more. I do know that he was mad. Now, when, when you're doing these films, Breakfast Club, it's this ensemble of young talent. Was everybody on, like, an equal footing? Did he bring people on who were all kind of in the same place in their careers? Or were there some of you that were—things were a little shinier than others? I think we were all sort of—I mean, maybe—I think Allie had a lot of—you uh, know, she had done War Games, mm-hmm. and she did a movie with Sean Penn, and— you know, written a book, and she was. You know, yeah. she was. <laughs> she was Lillian <laughs> Hellman. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think she had, you know, and then and then uh, Emilio was in The Outsiders, and he had that, and he was, of course, the son of Martin Sheen, and you know, I think I think we all kind of, except for Judd. Judd was the only one that I think really didn't have any um, real experience, and in fact, he he got fired after uh, like. I think one week of shooting, John was ready to fire him. And then rehired him. And then rehired him, yeah. Because I was going to say, the person who comes across the hungriest on camera is Nelson. Interesting. Nelson almost seems like he's a guy that they plucked off the street and (laughs) threw in there and said, (laughs) what would you like to be in a movie? And he just has this raw animal, so... He was uh, wild-eyed. He was wild. I mean, he was real, and he was really doing that whole method acting thing where he was, I think, you know, moonlighting in a school, which I mean, I'm sure would not go over today if this, you know, basically a somebody in their 20s just shows up at school like, hey, I'm just going to hang out. You know, he he would tell the kids that his parents had abandoned him or whatever. You know, he was he would like sleep in his clothes. You know, I mean, he yeah. just was completely into this character, and also that character was supposed to be different than the rest of us. I mean, we all bitch about our parents, but he's really the one who's actually being abused for real. He has like a cigar burnt into his forearm, you know. So there was something different about him. (laughs) When that that movie comes out, because I want to get beyond this period. Uh, when that movie Thank comes you, out, Thank you, Alec. Thank you. I do too. <laughs> when that movie comes out, no, but but I think what's interesting is it's, it's funny how one day, you know, you are a movie star whose work as a young leading lady in these coming of age films were very popular films. Do you yeah. kind of like? You're like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, great. You don't yeah. really want to. Well, I mean, you're I, sick of it. I sometimes, sure, but I mean, I also have to accept the fact. I mean, I guess I don't have to accept it, but I do accept the fact that these films really no longer belong to me. They belong to everyone else. And they're very meaningful, and I and I have to sort of respect that. Um, you know, I mean, I'm wrapped up in people's memories, and I'm part of their their slumber parties, and I'm part of their first kiss. And, and, I, and I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I hear, you got me through high school. You got me through this very difficult time in my life. You know, and, and it's kind of moving. People never say that to me. <laughs> they never say that to me. They never say, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross got me through high school. <laughs> got me through my you know. 20s. Um, I, I can respect that at the same time. It's not what is most interesting to me in my life. You know, it's definitely one of the highlights, but I'm more interested in, in sort of what I'm doing in the moment. 
Molly Ringwald is singing jazz at the moment, or rather next month, at Birdland in New York City. Take a listen to the Here's the Thing archives, where director Chris Columbus talks about the stroke of luck that led to his first movie. Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, was leaving his office on a Friday and passed his secretary's desk, and it was sitting there. That's why so much of this business is luck. Yeah. He passed the script and saw the title and said, oh, that looks interesting. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is author, singer, and actress Molly Ringwald. 
Molly Ringwald actually has something in common with another one of my guests, Mickey Rourke. They both took a long time off from filmmaking. After the massive success of films like The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink, Molly knew she had an opportunity to reinvent herself, but she was unsure how to begin. I guess I was just really young. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I don't think it was probably the right time for me to do that. I mean, I look at people now like Lena Dunham and, and, you know, and John was always telling me, you have to write, you have to direct, this is what you have to do. But it was like I just wasn't ready and I had to, I had to live a little bit before I was ready to sort of, I just, I, I don't feel like I was a prodigy in that way. Um, and, and I needed to live life kind of away from everything and sort of learn how to be a, a human being and sort of be more well-rounded. And that's sort of what I ended up doing. So you, you, when you make these films uh, and you're very young and you're surrounded by people, but you're savvy, well, who are the people you work with that you ended up admiring? Actors, directors? Who, let's stick with actors for the time being. Who was somebody who you worked with and you thought, wow, they were really, they were good? John. I think John Cassavetes. Um, I think. Uh, what about your peers? Raul Julia. In terms of my peers, um, I'm trying to think who did I who did I really I really loved Sean Penn. I really wanted to work with him as an actor, but he was older than me. He was, you know, I think he's like a good ten, ten years older than me. There was really nobody at the time that was that was my age. That that. I could get paired up with. Yeah. And and it was like another moment in time. You'd where, already been paired up with all of them <laughs> <laughs> in those movies. It was also a time where they weren't casting really young people with older people like right. they are now. Like your leading man was not 30 years older. It just wasn't done like right then in this like little tiny moment of time. And so we came across that that thing all the time where like nobody knew who to set me up with on film. You weren't cast opposite Sean Connery. No. Oh. No, oh. I, I was not. Okay. I mean, I never really had uh, any male co-stars that were sort of, that, that could sort of match Pick up where I was. A little bit, and, and that's what I did. But like Robert Downey at the time wasn't known. I mean, he was he was really sort of unknown. He had small parts, I think, in John's movies, but, you know, he that was... That was a big part for him, though. That was a huge part for Toback. him. Toback. <laughs> Our mutual friend Toback, <laughs> who was a guest on this show, by the way. Toback. I love Toback. He's, yeah. I, he was great with me. I think I was probably the only woman that that he never made a play for, uh-huh. like, in the history nothing, nothing of the universe. Of. You know, and yeah. that was just because, you know, Warren was producing it. And so I sort of, it was like having like the mafia right. there. Like he knew, you know, don't don't go near here. Um, yeah, so it was just kind of like a weird time where I think people didn't really know what to do with me. And I was not, I mean, I was savvy, but I was not savvy enough to really know exactly what to do with myself other than uh, to get out, to sort of distance myself. I had a famous actress once in the late 80s, and she was shooting a film, and she came to the set to meet me to talk about doing a reading of a script with her. And this actress, this famous actress who was a child star, said to me, uh, she was going to take off a year or something, and I said, don't you like to work? I said, how do you take off all that time? I mean, you must have endless opportunities to make films. You're very talented and very sought after. And she said, I hate working Hmm. because she'd worked so much when she was young. Yeah. And it really affected her. Did you feel the same way? 
Um, I don't know that I ever hated working. Um, Did you grow to feel like you've done enough of that? It was that I was so not turned on by the material, and I didn't know how to write myself then. I, I was writing, um, and I've always written, you know, along with with singing and acting, but it was— I wasn't good enough, and and I wasn't confident enough in what I was writing to put it out there. So what did you do? What did I do? I mean, in those years after those films with John, what was your kind of compass? You said to yourself, I want to do what? I moved to Paris. Talk about that. (laughs) How long were you there? I was there, I mean, uh, full-time for about five years, and then then pretty much on and off for about 10 years. Um, I moved from Paris to New York, and then I kept a residence in both places. But I just—I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do other than I wanted to be somewhere where I could just be myself. So I, I went to Paris. I got rid of the red hair. I, you know, dyed my hair dark. I learned French. I mean, I went to French class. I mean, before I went to Paris, I did what I was supposed to do. You I, were single. You weren't married then. No, I was not married. Right. Um, I I was still in Los Angeles, but I— I, um, I I applied to a college, you know, because I felt like that's what I was supposed to do. And I got accepted to USC um, with the agreement that I would take special math courses <laughs> because I'm so bad with math. Uh, and then I went to Paris to do a job, one of those, you know, stupid jobs that, you know, where it's a terrible script. But, you know, hey, you're going to be in Paris in May and why not, you know. And then I went there and I just thought— this it was like suddenly breathing oxygen after you've been just suffocating, um, and it was it was the most incredible feeling. And I thought I just have to chase this. I'm not married. I don't have any kids. If I ever do this in my How life, how old were you then? Now's the time. I was about twenty three, twenty four. And what did you do with yourself over there? I just lived. Right. I just like drank a lot of wine <laughs> and ate a lot of cheese and walked around yeah. and. And learn French and, and— And become a part of something. Yeah. I mean, I just—you know, it, it, eventually I knew that my life was not going to end up there. I knew that I was not going to become, you know, the next Jane Birkin. I wasn't going to—you know, that's not where I was going to end up. But it was—it was, it gave me some distance to sort of recharge and to figure out, you know, what— what I was going to do with my life and who I was going to be. And then I kind of had to sort of decide again whether or not I wanted to act as an adult, you know, because when I did it as a young person, it was so completely, it was just all instinct, you know, and I, and I, you know, can you really say that you make a decision when you're a minor, you know? Yeah, I loved it, but it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was entirely my decision. So I kind of had to make that decision again as an adult and say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing this, but I'm going to do other stuff too. And when did you step up to bat again, so to speak, with acting was? Actually, you're a little bit instrumental in this. Oh, God. (laughs) No, it's it's a good thing. I think it's a really good thing. I, you know, when you do something for so long and it comes easy to you, it's easy to kind of lose respect for what you do. And you sort of realize that not everyone can do it. And I remember I was asked to do a to read a story for the New Yorker Festival, and you were reading a story too. And I was really pregnant at the time. I remember, and I wasn't crazy about the story that I was reading, but you did the most incredible reading I've ever heard. Oh God! It was it was phenomenal. I mean, you had to do an Irish accent, you had to do an African accent. Do you remember this? No. 
Really? It was it was an, it was an Irish writer. Um, it was. Wow, I'll have to go look back. You have to way. because yeah. I thought, how is he doing? Like, how much did he work on this? And it really oh kind of God. made me remember, in a way, what what was possible in terms of acting and how and how that it really is a skill. And I had to sort of look at that and, and say, like, well, how is he do Like, does he just, like, work on accents when he's sitting by himself? Right, right. And it was sort of like a, a series. I mean, that that wasn't the only moment, but that was, like, a moment like that sort right. of. I had these moments and, and doing theater again right. in you, New York. You look that, at someone and you're like, that's what that is. Yeah. And I want to see somebody like Cherry Jones. Yeah. Every time I see Cherry, she's a very vivid example of someone who reminds me of why we do this. Yeah. Yeah, and and also uh, uh, Jeffrey Tambor and what he's doing right now in Transparent. You know, I've always known him. I think as most people, as, as a comedic actor, and I, you know, I worked with him, um, and he was, you know, playing one of the buffoons that you know, of many that he played, and to see him play this part and not do the obvious thing. It's moments like those that remind me of why I'm doing what I'm doing and how and how challenging it can still be. But in order to do work like that, you have to have great material. And unfortunately, there is just a dearth of great material for everyone, but particularly yeah. for, for actresses, it's, it's even worse. So, you know, so I can't only do that. I think if I'm only an actor, I'll go out of my mind, and it's, it's why I write books, and it's why I sing. And, you do you know, like writing books? I do. It's, uh, it's the hardest thing that I do, for sure. It doesn't come easily. Like, I didn't come out of the womb writing books. So it's something that I always have to work at. And I, I, don't, I don't think that I've ever had that confidence in writing, but it, it's something that I have, that I'm more proud of when I've written the hell out of something and I, and I understand something about a character and why somebody does what they do which is, I think is the same thing that I'm interested in in, in acting. It's, it's the characters and how you can take somebody who's so flawed and see them from all angles. And, and that's just an, an obsession that I have. And when I do that and I do it well, it, there's no greater feeling. I feel like I'm flying. I love doing plays, and I don't get to do them as often as I'd like, especially now that I have little kids. Do you, do you like performing in the theater? I do, yeah. But do you minimize that because of your own family situation? Um, no, it's actually one of the reasons why I moved back to New York was because I I I really miss doing theater, and my kids all love theater. Um, How old are your children now? I have a twelve year old, and I have two six year olds, uh, a girl and a boy, Adele and Roman. You have three children. I have three children. And you live outside the city. Uh, you're not in the city. No, not right now. And you thought that was what you needed to do with your kids. Yeah. You wanted to get out of the city. Yeah. Well, I wanted to have proximity to the city. Yeah. You know, um, but— It's nearby. But, you know, when we were in Los Angeles, we kept sort of trying out neighborhoods, and I just kept getting further and further out. You know, we moved back, and I said, well, you know, when I was in Los Angeles, I was always on the east side, so if I have to go back, I'm going to be on the west side, and my kids are going to grow up in the surf. So we started out in Venice, and then we moved to Santa Monica, and then to Rustic Canyon, and then we, you know, ended up in Topanga until finally I just said, you know, in fact, I don't want to be here. <laughs> I really don't want to be here. And you don't here. want to go back? No, I mean, I, I want to go back to visit. My my parents are, are in Northern California. I just, I don't like Hollywood. I just, um, you know, and I don't care if you're in Topanga, if you're in the vicinity of Los Angeles. It's just, it just doesn't feel real to me. And it and never really did. And maybe it's because I wasn't born in, in Los Angeles. I was born in Northern California. But 
I and I feel like there's a real distinction between Northern and Southern California, but it just it always felt like artifice to me. It, it never felt real. And so when when I had everyone's eyes on me, it felt uncomfortable. When I had when I felt like no one's eyes were on me, that feels uncomfortable. It just the whole the whole thing just didn't feel good to me. And and I finally and I and I was really the one that wanted to move back to New York because my husband was raised on the East Coast and you know for him California was Do you great. mind my asking what business is he in? He's a book editor and writer Fantastic. and uh, and then he took a little hiatus and and got his MBA at Stanford. You're a genius. <laughs> You just you know, landed on your he's feet. A, he's a yeah, genius. Yeah, exactly. Marrying a genius. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but he liked he liked it out there, you know. And he made some good friends, and it was very sunny. But I just said, if if I if if we move back, we have to do it now because Matilda is leaving middle school, and I don't want her to go to a middle school and then pull her out of it. So if we do it, we have to do it now. It's all about our kids. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and and I would have I would have just sucked it up and and just stayed there if if it didn't happen. But I said I, I really I will wither and die. <laughs> Not that I'm dramatic or anything, but I will wither and die if I have to stay here. Please, please, let's go back. And so um and so yeah, so we're how, back. How driven and how creative, and how uh, uh, um, stage worthy is Matilda? <laughs> and how are you going to handle that differently than yours was handled? Uh, she. I, I have a rule. I don't know if you made the same rule for your kids, but my, my kids are not allowed to be professional as kids. And that's just based on my own personal experience. I don't think that they, they just, if they have talent, that talent will not go away. And if they go through college and get to, or, or at least to that college age and say, you know what, this is really what I want to do, I'll do whatever I can to help them and support them. But they know that they can't do that before then. But I said, you can do theater, you can take classes, you know, you can, um, you know, you can do whatever you want as long as it's not professional. And it's been a battle. I think, I think Matilda's somewhat resigned now. Um, but, you know, it's been, I mean, for a while it was a daily battle. You know, well, why, why can't I? Why could you, why was it okay for you and not for me? Um, and I just, you know, we just, it's both of us. It's not just me. My husband and I have made that decision. And I just want to see what they do. I mean, they're extraordinary, you know. And and personally, I think if I was gonna, if I was a betting person, I would bet that she is uh, is going to be a director. And I just hope that she'll put me in her movie. <laughs> she, I mean, she's a she's she's really incredible uh, director, and she makes her own movies. And you know, and I think if she was all concentrated on going and you know going to auditions and getting rejected and doing all of that stuff, I don't know that she would be doing what she's doing right now and and figuring that stuff out out of the public eye. And I just think that it's the right thing to do. I think she's very lucky to have you as a mother with your perspective because as I tell people, I go to acting classes sometimes and teach, and I'll say to them, but also remember that if you want to be happy, this is not a great business. Mm -hmm. It's not a great business. The thing about you that strikes me is there are people who become stars and it's only visual. You know, you're very striking looking and, and, and it's only visual. And then they go away. But you as an actress then had something very unique. You had something very special. You had this tremendous emotional reservoir. You were very emotive in the films. And you had a bravery. Mm. You know, your character faced things. When people remember those films and they see you now, they see somebody who was uh, very brave. Mm. I mean, there's a kind of a bravery to you in those films that I really, really loved. 
I, I love that. And and it's it's something that I hear from people. And also, um, I think the fact that I have survived and, and flourished, that that I'm still here, that that I more or less look the same, that I you that do. I have a family. You look fantastic. That I'm that I'm okay, <laughs> I think is incredibly reassuring. I, as for I'm people. sitting here with you. You're one of the few people in the world, raise your plastic water bottle with me. Uh-huh. You're one of the first few people in the world I can be in a room with and say, to John Hughes. To John Hughes. If Molly Ringwald got you through high school, you may want to read her books, Getting the Pretty Back and When It Happens to You. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 